to our series on in Ecclesiastes. We started working through Ecclesiastes in the fall, and we're picking it back up after a brief break for Advent and Christmas. And just as a reminder, Ecclesiastes is not optimistic or pessimistic. It's realistic. The author sees the world clearly and helps us to consider what it means to fear the Lord, which Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. It also points us ahead to our Savior who saves us from the futility of our sin and rebellion. This morning we're talking about the topic or the idea of contentment as we look at Ecclesiastes 5 verses 8 through 20. So I'm going to read that. That's where we, we sort of stopped in the middle of the chapter, just the way the passages fell. And so we're just picking back up. The first part of the chapter really did address the fear of the Lord and how we worship God. And now we continue with this chapter. So if you'll follow along, uh, you'll find this passage on uh, page 6 in the bulletin or page 555 in the Pew Bibles or however you want to follow along as I read God's word this morning the author of ecclesiastes writes if you see a province the the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them but this is a gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, and he shall go, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, that just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. In all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. It is a gift to us. And we pray that its truth, your truth, would... uh, be in our minds and our hearts and our thoughts, Lord, that you would be at work within us. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be together in your house and to hear your word. And I pray for myself as a servant that you would speak through me. And that where there may be uncertainty or confusion, those would be my words and my words alone that they would quickly pass. 
But Lord, where there is exhortation and encouragement, we pray those would be your words and they would remain with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wanted to live in a castle? I'll be honest. I see a picture of a castle and I immediately begin imagining myself living there. Not not as a servant, (laughs) right? I I imagine, you know, I look at the turrets and I think, how cool would it be to go up in there? And, you know, I need um, a moat and a drawbridge, right? Every castle needs a moat and a drawbridge. And I'll have a dungeon, of course, but I'll be a, a good king, of course, and I won't need that dungeon. But just in case, right, I see these castles and I begin daydreaming. Please tell me I'm not alone. I, I'm Okay, I'm alone. I'm throwing you all in my dungeon. So, of course, on the Internet, you'll find all sorts of things about castles, including an article that says, want to live like royalty? Here's how to buy your own castle. Now, this article, of course, does come with the pros and cons of owning a castle. Of course, a pro is that uh, it might have a potentially rich history and you become a custodian of historic structure. You can bask in the prestige of owning a one of a kind property. Enjoy unique features you might never have imagined. Of course, I'm imagining them all. Now, the cons could be more expensive to restore than building a castle yourself. Did you hear that? Just build your own. Don't buy somebody else's. And of course, if you buy a pre-owned castle, you can't choose the location. And it goes on to say it's not cheap to maintain a castle. Consider additional expenses like gardening, personnel, structural maintenance, heating and air conditioning. Assume these costs will run at least five to 10000 a month. Now you see what happens to my castle dream. It withers very quickly. So I can live without the drawbridge and the moat. And most of the time, the castles just live in our fairy tales and on our TV shows. Or maybe it's not a castle, but more like a manor or a big estate like Downton Abbey. But underneath, I think for me at least, maybe I'm just preaching myself, there's something closer to reality. It speaks to where we live spiritually. We live with a constant longing for more, for bigger and better. It may not rise to the level of a castle. But we are never far from living with a discontentment with our lives that show up in those daydreams. It it matches up with an inflated view that we have of ourselves and what we deserve. Scripture is constantly teaching us that there is something better that the Lord offers to us than what we can find in this world. Castles included. And so my theme this morning is this. Contentment is a good gift from God. Now I see that in verse 9, verse 12, verses 18 through 20. But before that, I want to talk about a problem that we have with discontentment and how the cross of Christ speaks to that discontentment and then to consider some practical ways we can seek this good gifts that God gives us. So I'm going to do those three parts. The winter of our discontent. The cross and contentment and riches I heed not. Those are my three points. So the winter of our discontent, that's the title of a book by John Steinbeck. 
It's his last novel, 1961, but you may also know that he took that title from Shakespeare, Richard III. The main character, Ethan Hawley, his late father loses his fortune. And so this character now, Ethan, works as a grocery store clerk in the store his family used to own. His wife and children are upset with their station in life, their lot in life. And so they're in his ear. And then other people are in his ear saying, you deserve more. You should have more. They don't value his honesty and integrity that he seeks to maintain in his work and what he does. So as he hears all these voices, he ends up abandoning that integrity and that honesty. And it continues to go down the hill, his discontentment and the others of wanting more around him. At one point, he almost robs a bank. It doesn't go through it with it because of a, a circumstance that pops up. But this is where he ends up. And so his gaining more, which he does, although it comes through lies and deceit and uh, sinfulness, it does not lead to the contentment that he seeks. It simply leads to more discontentment. The same is true for us. The quest for more will leave us wanting in a kind of perpetual winter of discontentment. The sun shines, but the chill of envy, greed, and lust, and coveting cling to our bones. Verse 8 gives us a very brief picture. It is that of injustice and oppression, particularly in the political realm. Or maybe with bureaucracy, it's a very brief picture, something you see all the time. Preacher says, don't be surprised when you see this. And certainly there are those who suffer. Those who are at the lower rung of society, the poor, are the ones who suffer the most. Meanwhile, people in positions of power, they, begin, they get fat and the people above them get a little fatter and the people above them get even fatter, if you will, with the gain from their oppression. But Ecclesiastes says, don't be surprised by that. This is a reality, the world that we live in. There are some countries that run on bribes. Right? If you want to get something done, you've got to bribe an official. Thankfully, when you go to the DMV, I mean, it's not a fun experience, but you don't have to bribe the person. It feels like you do. Verse 10, there's maybe even more clear and pointed and personal here. Uh, when the author of Ecclesiastes says in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. That's not about a matter of if you have a lot or a little. That's about your heart. So you can love money and have a lot. You can love money and not have a lot. It's about the condition of your heart. And we should all listen closely to that because it's not dependent upon what we have or where we live, or what position we have. It's here. You can't avoid the encumbrance of greed. One commentator called it the vanity of increase. The bulk of this passage is a short story, an illustration of a business owner that shows this principle that our desire for more is a vanity. He loses everything. This is what you find in verses 13 through 17. That's the bulk of this passage. This little short story. 
It's very similar to the rich fool, the parable of the rich fool that Jesus tells in Luke 12. I'll let the English study, uh, English Standard Version Study Bible summarize this story. The owner endured hardship and sacrifice in order to acquire his wealth, but was never able to enjoy it as it was lost in a bad venture so that he neither enjoyed his riches nor did anything worthwhile with them. To make matters worse, he had a family to provide for. And so he has nothing to give to his family. And verse 15 is very pointed as well. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. 1 Timothy 6 quotes this, and it's like the old saying, you don't see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. You can't take it with you. You can't take it away. And so there's these pictures of the vanity of increase, the vanity of our wanting more, the vanity of our discontentment. I saw another article, it started like this, it got turned into a Porta Audi, 134,000 sports car, resembled a mobile septic tank after a burst pipe in an underground garage burst and the, the waste, looking for the right word, broke through the glass and began to fill up the car. $134,000, beautiful, I mean, it's like this lime green, it's not my color, but still a beautiful car. Or think of, in September, a Florida man revealed that his newly purchased $1 million McLaren P1 supercar was swept away during Hurricane Ian with 300 miles on the odometer. Now, I know that's why you have insurance, right? But still, can you imagine? And it's sort of a picture of, the vanity, these things, things will break down. Storms will come. Sewer lines will bust. But here's where things really turn dark. As you see comments about these circumstances, you get the impression that people are just watching on the sidelines, judging those with more, saying, good, serves them right. I mean, after all, why did they deserve a million-dollar sports car? And I'm not, I'm not here to defend... Uh, buying a million dollar supercar but it speaks to more about our hearts when we respond like that than it does about the circumstances the allure of riches is constant which merely increases our discontentment and weighs us down none of us deserve anything it is all a gift from the lord and the cross leads us to live more and more in the space of gratitude and joy than with envy of others or dissatisfaction with our own lives. So let's consider the cross and contentment. Jesus asks a probing question in Luke nine twenty five: For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What does it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his soul? We have imagined that winning, a life, winning at life is found in our abundance, but that actually reveals a poverty of our souls that we are un- incapable 
incapable of rectifying by our own strength or wealth or position. And so the grace of Jesus' question is that it gives us an opportunity to interrogate our own misplaced hopes in this vain world, especially in what we may be able to acquire, to ask ourselves if what we think will make us happy will really satisfy our deepest longings. I mean, we have a phrase, retail therapy, right? The idea that if you can go out a little bit, do a little shopping, maybe it's just window shopping, you will be able to deal with the difficulties in your life. Now, we know that that's really not how that works, and and there's nothing wrong sometimes with stepping away from our circumstances to get a breather, to get perspective. But this notion of retail therapy speaks to what lurks in our hearts that ultimately we think there's something out there that we can purchase or grab a hold of, and that will make us whole. And we live in a world of constant danger and discouragement. But Jesus came to offer us new life, an abundant one at, la- at that. Your desire for more finds its fulfillment in Christ's gift of eternal life for you. And that life starts now. It doesn't start in heaven. It starts when you belong to Christ, when you yield to him, when he becomes your savior. And he becomes that by coming into this world to inhabit our world. To bear in his body all of our sins, including our greed, our avarice, our acquisitiveness, our envy, our coveting, our lusting, our desire for more. And everything that has its root in that desire for something that God doesn't give us. Or the world puts on offer. Or the belief in the lie that if we just had a little bit more, a little bit extra, we would be okay. How does Jesus come? Not as a king, not as a prince, not as one who lived in a castle, born in a manger. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became us poor. That hymn of, is based on 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is what the incarnation meant. Jesus not coming as a prince, not coming as the son of a king or a Caesar, king or a Caesar, not born in a high estate or with a wealthy inheritance awaiting him. The only way for Christ to come as our mediator, as our savior, he had to humble himself from his exalted and divine state and enter into ours. And he does that for us so that we might be made co-heirs with Christ and inheritors of a precious promise, receiving the riches of salvation. And that changes everything. Doesn't it? It changes everything. On Monday night, I don't know if any of you are football fans. I wasn't actually watching the Monday night football game, but Ethan comes in the room. I'm reading, and he asks, did you hear about what happened? I said, no, I'd seen something uh, pop up on social media, but I didn't really track what was happening. But 
in the National Football League, a football player made a tackle, stands up, and then he collapsed to the ground. And he went into cardiac arrest. And on the field there, for about 10 minutes, he was being given CPR and they were using the AED. Now, thankfully, he is doing well, but there were moments there where they thought he might die. Or if he lived, he might not have cognitive ability or physical ability. And of course, it was encouraging to see the teams gather in prayer as I saw the scenes later. Or on ESPN to have a commentator pray on air in Jesus' name. That doesn't usually happen, I assure you. But there was also a commentator on a different show. Nick Wright is his name. He's a co-host on a show called First Things First. And he's speaking to one of his other co-hosts, who I know to be a a, a Christian, a, a follower of Christ. And he says to him, he's speaking to him, he says he sort of wishes in these moments where life flashes before our eyes and we see some sort of tragedy, which of course happens all the time, but it's not always live on our television screens. He expresses a wish for a firmer foundation. He acknowledges that he's not a religious person, or as he says, deeply religious, as he calls his friend and co-host. And he says, at times like this, when there's an inexplicable tragedy, you're almost flailing about. Why? Why does this happen to this man? Why does this happen? These things shake people. And you might realize those things that you wish you had. Look at a, a young football player. He has youth on his side. He has athleticism. He has a cool job. He ha- probably has more than a few dollars in his bank account. Those things will not rescue you. They could not rescue Damar Hamlin. Only Jesus can save you from the power of death. And thankfully he did not die. And I don't know if he's, uh, DeMar Hamlin's a Christian or not. It seems like he may have a faith in Christ. But only the one who dies so that we can live can lead us to a place where we can be stunned by tra- tragedy, but not dismayed. The cross becomes the foundation for our all contentment in the face of our lack, in the face of the world's temptation, and death that none of us will escape. And it won't matter how much is in your bank account. J.C. Ryle commenting on the parable of the rich fool, which ends with Christ giving a warning about being rich towards God. He says, when can it be said of a man that he is rich towards God? Never until he is rich in grace and rich in faith and rich in good works. Never until he has applied to Jesus Christ and bought of him gold tried in the fire. Never until he has a house not made with his hands, eternal in heavens. Never until he has a name inscribed in the book of life and a joint heir with Christ. Such a man is truly rich. His treasure is incorruptible. His bank never breaks. His inheritance never fades away. Man cannot deprive him of it. Death cannot snatch it out of his hands. All things are his already. Life, death, things present and things to come. Riches like these are within the reach of every sinner who will come to Christ and receive them. 
That is the gift that is on offer to you. And contentment is a good gift from God. And it starts and flows from the cross of Christ. And it flows from our receiving that grace of God that is shown to us in the cross. And through what Christ does. And so in view of God's justifying and sanctifying grace, we can reorient ourselves properly toward the allure of constant, shiny objects. And there are many. And so I want to conclude, or my last point, with riches I heed not, which we're going to sing, Be Thou My Vision. And in there, there's a line, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. I want that to be a, true of my life riches i heed not nor man's empty praise thou mine inheritance now and always thou and thou only first in my heart high king of heaven my treasure thou art there are three areas i want to point out that we can live out and as we look at this passage again i want to point out a couple places but first of all be aware that cynicism will rob you of contentment It is easy to be cynical in a fallen world with the constant news cycles. And we can wonder if the fallenness and sinfulness of this world is all there is. So verse 8, that picture of bureaucracy at work and maybe people getting fat off of others. And the Ecclesiastes says, don't be amazed, don't be dismayed by this on one hand. Don't be naive. That's not the alternative to cynicism. That's not the suggestion. But then in verse 9, the author points out, but this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated lands. The meaning seems to be this. While there is oppression and injustice in bad government, there is the hope and possibility of something better that benefits all. So again, you may get cynical when you go to the DMV, but I imagine it's better than a system that requires bribes or where everybody just drives however they want. I mean, you already think people drive however they want. Imagine if they really were. So what drives your cynicism? If it's social media, then step back from it. If it's a constant news cycle, then spend some time in God's word, which never changes. If it's a friend who constantly complain, or maybe you are that friend, Maybe next time you're talking with them, ask them, hey, what's giving you joy in life right now? What are you thankful for? These sorts of questions. Cynicism is anti-gospel, but the gospel says there is reason to hope because one day all will be made right, even if it isn't right right now. So you be looking. Where do you see signs of this in the world? And so one of the things that happened after Monday night is DeMar Hamlin had a GoFundMe set up to uh, for uh, raise a goal of $2,500 so that he could, through his charitable foundation, provide toys for children at Christmas. So he, I think he had raised about that much, $2,500. And then it began being shared. And last I checked, which was a couple of days ago, $8 million had been donated. So where do you see God at work? Where do you see signs of life in this world? Spend more time with the precious uh, promises of God than the trifles of this world.
So be aware that cynicism robs you of, of contentment. Also, seek first the kingdom of God. The gift of contentment is a matter of more, but not more stuff, but more rest in God's promises and pursuit of his purposes. So you had that pointed statement in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied. And then a little bit more, when goods increase, verse 11, they increase who eat them. There's this contrast that's provided between verses 11 and 12. You get more and then you're worried about the more that you have. You've got to pay more for insurance. You've got to shine the car a little bit more. You, you start to worry about every little thing and you can't rest. Verses verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Again, that contrast is provided. And Jesus didn't just say, don't be anxious about our lives. But he concludes in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Contentment is a gift that we are able to experience regardless of our circumstances as we are pursuing that which we are made for. The kingdom and God's righteousness. Joe Thorne says contentment is born of grace, not goods. And I think that's a good word. I don't know if you make New Year's resolutions. I don't mind them. I don't put a bit, lot of stock in them, but I don't mind the opportunity as new times start, new years or new seasons, to evaluate where we are. So I'm drinking. I'm trying to drink more water. Join, you know, raise your hand if you're trying to drink more water. Right? It's what is that kind of thing. But maybe as you're thinking about those things, don't ask you ask yourself what will make me more content, or what will make me more happy. But how can I experience more of what God has promised in his grace? And it's Christ who empowers that question. My third and final thing in practical ways of thinking about contentment is received each day with thanksgiving. Jerry Bridges says gratitude is a handmaiden of contentment. In our youth Sunday school class, what we do each Sunday morning is I will ask our students something from the past week that they are thankful for. I don't care if it's, sometimes, it's the coffee I'm drinking that I'm thankful for. Right? I don't care if it's coffee or a granola bar or uh, you know, something bigger, right? something we got as a present or something we've experienced. I'm simply wanting to cultivate within myself and for them a habit of gratitude. Gratitude is a muscle you have to exercise. And verse 18 through 20 provides a picture, an alternative to looking for our fulfillment of our want only in the Lord. That's what it gives us a picture of. We must see everything as a gift from him. It is ultimately from him. Some will have more than me or you. Some will have less, but all that we have is a gift. And that becomes the focal point of contentment. Not the wants, but the ways that we have grace from God, both here in this world and the world to come. When you see life through that lens, then you're able to grow in the grace of contentment. Joy becomes a more regular experience because you're focused not on the gifts, but on the giver. Joy becomes a more 
permanent experience because we accept what God has ordained, not what we're striving to gain. Joy becomes the hallmark of our contentment, and people want a piece of that because it can't be lost and it can't be bought. So let me conclude with this. I doubt, if I'm honest, I'll ever live in a castle. As much as I sometimes daydream about that possibility. But there is something that Jesus promises by way of an eternal home. I don't know if it's a castle or not, but I do know that it has many rooms. It might just be a king's castle. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. A precious promise. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you know how tempted we are by the desire for more, uh, thinking that if we had a little bit more money or a little bit more stuff, something new to play with or something to replace what's broken or lost, we'd be satisfied. We'd be at peace. We'd be content. And sometimes for a, a brief moment, that's true, but it never lasts. Those things get lost again and they break again and we break and we get lost in our thoughts and our feelings and our circumstances. Father, you are the eternal one. And what you've given us through Christ is everlasting, never fading, always on. Lord, we thank you. And so I pray that you'd help us to seek the contentment that you give us as a good gift in view of your precious promises. And Lord, if there's someone here who has not received Christ as their Savior, then I pray you'd lead them to that place so that they might begin to live more and more with that kind of a contentment and have the confidence of it. But for each one of us, Lord, would you lead us to a place where we trust you with all things, with our wants, with our needs, with our gifts, every good and precious thing that you give to us and everything that you've promised. Lord, let us continue to look to you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.